Good morning, church. Thank you, friend, for that. All right. Great to see you today. If we haven't met, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cedar Mill, and uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I'm glad you joined us today in particular. If you're new with us, you picked a great day because we're starting a, a, new, a new season and a new uh, series. We're calling it In Tension. And I want to say a couple of things about our series before we jump into the actual passage today. First of all, this is a Lenten series, which means we're going to be in this series for the entire season of Lent. And Lent is a season on the church calendar, which leads us to Easter. It allows us to enter into uh, the days and the weeks before Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It helps prepare our hearts for the joy of the resurrection because we enter into the difficulty and the suffering of the days and weeks before. Uh, second thing is, we're calling this, this series Intention. We're walking through the final seven moments in the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. This is just the last couple days of Jesus' life and these very poignant moments. And the idea here is that we want to get into the tension with Jesus and his disciples. These are not lighthearted moments. This isn't going to be a, a happy-go-lucky series. This is going to be a series where we dive in to really understand the deep and, and difficult experience of Jesus as he walks that, that final stretch of road towards the cross. And our goal in this series is to get as close to these moments as we can. This is not just a, a series about information, about understanding or learning, although we will do some of that. This is a series where we try to enter in and understand on an emotional level more fully who our God is and what he experienced. And so that's the road we'll be on. And we read the scripture passage today already from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. And as we explore this passage, I want to ask three questions that I think will help us dive in a little deeper to the tension that Jesus experiences. This is probably one of the most uh, beautiful, wonderful, difficult, agonizing, and amazing passages in all of the New Testament. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to ask three questions today. One, who is Jesus in this story? What do we see about Jesus? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we experience from him and with him? Who is Jesus in this story? Question two, why? Why is Jesus the way he is in our passage today? And then finally, what does it teach us? What does Jesus teach us? What does this Garden of Gethsemane moment have to say to you and me as we follow Christ in this world? Let's dive into question one. Who is Jesus in this story? One of the things we first notice in this passage is that Jesus, as he is looking to the cross and facing death, he does not seem to do it with the defiance and the bravery that we would expect. In fact, when you read this, this passage, these verses, Jesus seems terrified. He seems scared. He seems worried. He is completely and utterly overwhelmed. And this should be confusing to us for a couple of reasons. First, because this is not the Jesus that we have known or experienced up to this point in the story. 
In all four of the gospel accounts, but especially in the gospel of Mark, up to this point of the story, Jesus has been unflappable. He's confident, he's brave, he knows he's going to die, and it does not seem to faze him in the least. The scriptures tell us time and time again, he's warned by his disciples that death and danger await him in Jerusalem, and yet Jesus does not seem to care. His disciples are saying, they're out to get you, Jesus. They're going to kill you, Jesus. Beware of them. Don't go there, Jesus. And yet the scriptures say that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And flint is a very hard rock, and it's used figuratively in the Bible to express a hardness or a toughness in the face of an impossible task. You know, set his flint, his face like a flint is a way of saying he has unwavering determination to do what he is called to do. He doesn't flinch. He does not budge. That's who Jesus has been. And yet, not here. Not in the garden. And here's the second reason that's shocking. It's shocking because this is not how the great heroes of the world all throughout history, but especially in the ancient world, are supposed to face death. This is not what heroes do. We have examples all throughout time. But in this culture, think of Socrates. This is, you know, the New Testament is written to the Greco-Roman Empire. Socrates is right in the center of that empire. You remember Socrates' story. He's condemned to death, and he's told that he's going to have to drink this poison. But instead of begging for mercy or pleading for pardon, what does Socrates do? He drinks the poison calmly with defiance. Or you think of Stephen in the New Testament, a follower of Jesus. He's stoned for standing up for Christ and preaching the gospel. And in that moment, what does he do? He looks up to heaven and he praises God. It says, then Stephen fell on his knees. This is from Acts and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. There's this this calmness, this bravery to him. Or you think of the great church leader and Bishop Polycarp who was brought before a magistrate and told, either renounce your faith or be burned at the stake. Death by fire. Now, I don't know about you, but I think about possible ways to die. Like, there's a, I have a few that I'd like to, to choose if I could pick. You know, Lord, please, let me go this way. Um, but there's some ways that I definitely don't want to go. And, and death by fire is, is certainly at the top of that list. This is what Polycarp is being threatened with. Renounce your faith in Christ. Renounce Jesus as Lord or be burned at the stake. And listen to what Polycarp says in that moment. He stood and he said, The fire you speak of lasts but an hour, and it is quenched with a little. But what do you know of the fire of judgment? So come, why delay? Do what you will. And this is what we look for in in great leaders, right? Even in our world, you think of Braveheart, other heroes from the movies, Braveheart in the face of danger. What does he say? Freedom! Do what you will to me. And we say, yeah, that's our guy, right? They face death. That's what leaders do with courage and resolve and steadfastness. But not Jesus here. Look at the middle of verse 33. He he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
Scholars say that Greek word that's translated troubled is actually better translated as horror. The writer, the writer of the Gospel of Mark is telling us that Jesus is experiencing utter horror here. He's, he's staring into the face of his worst nightmare. And then it says that Jesus says these words, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I am so overwhelmed that it could kill me. Mark is trying to communicate to you and to me uh, the overwhelming agony that is plaguing Jesus and burdening his soul in the garden. So why? That's, if that's who Jesus is here, overwhelmed, burdened, troubled, terrified. Why? Why is Jesus like this? Why do we see this shift in the way Jesus was to way, the way he is now? Because like I said, he knows he's going to die. He's made this very clear all throughout the Gospels. He knows what's coming. Death is no surprise to him. But Mark uses a word in verse 33 that I think is important that you might miss. It says this. It says, Jesus began. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And the idea here is that something has changed, something has shifted, and Jesus is now seeing and experiencing something new that he has not seen or experienced before. And two words, two words, I think, in verse 36 indicate to us what that might be, what might be behind that change. Let me read the verse for us. These are Jesus' words. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. I'll talk about the word cup first. What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a symbol for the wrath of God against human evil. The cup is sort of a metaphor for divine justice against all the injustice of our world. And just as a quick side note, in case you're thinking, Wrath of God? Are we really? Are, I mean, it's 2022, Pastor Dave. Are we still talking about the wrath of God? It doesn't really sound like the kind of God that I really want to follow or worship, a wrathful God. It doesn't really sound like the kind of God that people in our world will be drawn to follow. Why are we talking about the wrath of God? No one wants a wrathful God. We want a loving God. And in case you're tempted to think that, like I am as well, let me share this with you because I think it's true. God's wrath is inextricably linked to God's love. God's wrath is linked to his love. Let me explain. The more you love someone, the more you love something, the more upset or outraged you are if that person or thing is hurt or wronged or abused. I think, like, imagine if you had a painting, if there's a painting that you loved. Some of you out there are art lovers. Some of you don't care about art. I'll give another example for you in a minute. But some of you really like art, and maybe there's a painting that you have admired and loved, and it's expensive, and so you've worked and saved. You thought, someday I'm going to have that painting. And then finally, you're able to purchase it, and you hung it in your house in a prominent place, maybe like right above the fireplace mantle, and it's there, and you love it, and you see it every day, and it brings joy to your heart, and then someone comes over with a knife and slices it up. Do you just say, well, you know, things happen? No, you are upset. 
You are really angry. Why? Because you loved that painting. You loved it. Let's make it more personal. Think about a child. A child that you love, a child that you care about, maybe your child. If someone were to hurt that child, and I will spare you details, you would be outraged. You would want justice and you would want it rightfully. Why? Why? Because you love that child. You see, our hurt and our anger and our sense of justice is linked to the love that we have. And friends, our love, here, here's, the, here's the key point. Our love is only a fraction, only a fraction of the love of God. And so our anger is only a fraction of his anger. Our outrage is only a fraction of his outrage. Why does God have wrath for sin? Because he can't stand the way it has ravaged and ruined the lives of his children. He can't stand the hurt and devastation it has caused. He can't stand all the lives that have been torn apart. If he didn't care, if he didn't care about the Holocaust or slavery or murder or abuse or hatred or lying or stealing, then that would mean he didn't really love those to whom those those things were done. But he does love us. And so what's happened to us outrages him. God's wrath is inextricably linked to God's love. And here in the garden, friends, here in the garden, Jesus is being offered for the very first time the cup of God's anger and frustration and justice and wrath for all that has been done wrong to God's children and God's creation throughout the entire course of human history, past, present, and future. You think about all the evil and all the hurt and all the pain throughout all of history, all being poured out onto one person in one moment, and now you just begin to understand what Jesus is facing here. You see, one of the things that we often miss and misunderstand about what Jesus experienced on the cross and, and why the thought of the crucifixion, even like the idea of it was so agonizing to him, is that we get so focused on the physical pain of the cross, the physical reality, the physical torture that Jesus will have to endure. And we've all heard sermons on this. I've preached sermons on this how excruciatingly painful the crucifixion was. We kind of broken it down and talked about how, you know, it's been designed by the Romans to torture and humiliate its victims. You think of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that was so popular and how it just highlighted, highlighted so vividly the physical pain that Jesus endured. It's become such a big deal to us that Jesus went to the cross and even endured that pain. And we think of the physical pain. But one of the things we notice in the scriptures, in the Bible, is that the Gospels actually say very little about Jesus' physical suffering on the cross. Some of you didn't know that. Some of you have never thought about that. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel we're in today, when we get to this section in a few weeks, here's all it says. And they crucified him. No details. No explanation about the physical pain, and they crucified him. You see, very little is said about Jesus' physical suffering on the cross, and that's because of this. Jesus' deepest suffering was not the physical pain he endured, but the separation he experienced from the Father because he was asked to drink the cup 
In this moment, in the garden, Jesus gets a glimpse, he gets a foretaste of what he will experience on the cross. And it's not a glimpse of the physical pain, it's a glimpse of the separation. For the first time, he gets to see that the justice and wrath of God will fall on him. And because of that, for the first time in all of eternity, he will be separated from his father. Here's what we can't grasp as human beings, as finite creatures. For all eternity, as far back as you can think, imagine, remember, and then multiply it times a billion, and then multiply that times a trillion. So as far back into all eternity as you can even comprehend Jesus has been intimately connected to his father and now for the first time he gets a glimpse that 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 connection will be severed notice how he cries to him he says Abba father Abba is the second word I want us to consider here the New Testament is actually written in Greek a little Bible lesson for you quickly here the New Testament is written in Greek this but this word Abba is not a Greek word. It's a, do you anyone know? It's an Aramaic word. Good job, Gary. Good work. It's an Aramaic word. So the whole New Testament is Greek, and yet Mark includes this Aramaic word here. Why does he do that? Because Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. Jesus and the disciples, the common language of the day, they would have been speaking Aramaic. But they write the New Testament in Greek. But here, Mark says, Abba, Father. Does he write it that way? So it's Aramaic, Greek, Abba, and then the Greek word for father. Why does he do that? Is it because Jesus said father twice and he used two different languages in this moment? Probably not. Mark does this, most likely, scholars tell us, because he wants us to know the exact word that Jesus spoke in this moment. That he said, Abba, because it's the Aramaic word for father filled with the most tenderness and compassion and intimacy and reliance and trust. Perhaps the best translation in English would be Papa. And here's the point. At the heart of Jesus' agony, in the very center of the the horror that he's experiencing, it's not the, the thought of physical pain, it's the reality of relational separation. Jesus and his father who've been together forever will now be divided for the first time. Can we imagine the pain? Can we imagine the torture? Can we imagine the agony? No, we can't because we can't imagine the relationship. You know, when my, uh, my grandfather passed away, I was pretty close to all four of my grandparents, but especially to my, my grandpa Varner, my mom's father. And I remember when I was in my mid-20s, and uh, he had had Parkinson's disease for years. He'd lived with us when I was in high school. Um, I'd watch my parents care for him. I'd been a part of sort of helping him through like, that aging process. And at the end of his life, he was living with my aunt over in Wisconsin. I was youth pastoring in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. And I remember getting the call. He doesn't have long for this world. He's going to die soon. And so Amy and I jumped in the car and we drove over. And I remember walking into that care facility where he was. And I remember sitting by his bed. And I remember for the last time holding his hand and talking to him. And I remember him looking at me. He couldn't speak, but I remember him looking at me and acknowledging my presence. And I remember saying final words to him. Then I remember saying goodbye and praying for him. And I remember walking out and getting in my car and that drive home knowing I'll never see him again. 
And then shortly after that, getting the call that he had gone to be with the Lord. And that feeling of finality, that sense that in this world, I will never be with my grandfather again. That is, there's something so, there's something so not right about that feeling because we were not created to experience death, friends. And yet we have to in this fallen, broken world. And that pain, that pain, some of you have experienced that kind of pain. Some of you have lost parents, not just grandparents. Some of you have lost spouses. Some of you have lost dear friends. Some of you, heaven forbid, have even lost children. And when you think about those losses, the pain that you experience there, it gives us just a glimpse just a fraction, I think, of what Jesus sees in this moment that he will experience on the cross. You see, this word Abba is a reminder for us. It reminds us of the immense, eternal, unfathomable, intimate relationship Jesus had with his Father. So why? Why is Jesus completely undone in this moment? Why is he overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death? It's not because he has less courage than Socrates or Polycarp or William Wallace. No, it's because he's facing something so much more than any of them ever had to face. And this leads to our final question. What does this teach us? What does the Garden of Gethsemane have to say to you and me? Two things. Here's the first one quickly. We live in a world and a culture where a very popular idea is stated often this way. All roads lead to heaven. In other words, there's there's lots of different ways for you to be right with and in the presence of God, specifically in the presence of God when you die. All roads, whatever path you choose, will get you to heaven. And in our world, to say otherwise, to say something other than this, to insinuate that there is only one way, to even sort of hint that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, is often viewed as arrogant. And I will pause here to say that there are ways Christians do communicate this that are arrogant and often feel condescending to people. So we must be careful of that because this is not, this is point is not meant to say, we're right, they're wrong, ha, 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 ha right? We're going to heaven and you're going somewhere else that's hotter, like, and we're happy about that. That's that. What really are we? No. Um, I'll say it this way. We must have the fruit of the Spirit when we talk about the things of the Spirit. Think about that for a second. We must have the fruit of the Spirit when we talk about the things of the Spirit. I could actually change that quote to say, we must have the fruit of the Spirit when we talk about the things of this world. I'll change that again. We must have the fruit of the Spirit when we talk about anything because we're followers of Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And by the way, this is a whole sermon. Some of you are thinking, I really want you to say more about that. And I say, another time. But that being said, the garden does show us that Jesus must be the only way. I mean, twice in this passage, he asks, is there any other way, Father? Any other way? Friends, if there was, would God not have chosen another route? He doesn't. 
He says, son, this is the only way to save them. And so Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. If this is what it takes, Father, then I will do it. Friends, how hurtful and how demeaning and how insensitive to Jesus to suggest that what he endured was anything but necessary, anything but the only path to salvation and redemption and righteousness for you and me and humanity and all of creation. That's the first thing we learn. It's the first thing we're faced with. That's the first tension point we must step into. This was the only way for God to make us right with him. Here's the second. One of the questions that theologians have asked over the centuries when they look at the Garden of Gethsemane, is this. It's a good question. Maybe you thought of it already. Maybe you haven't thought of it. When I say it, you're going to think, that's a good question. That's what I thought this week when I studied this passage. Why did God let Jesus see the cup? I mean, why would would God in this moment give Jesus a glimpse of what was going to happen on the cross? Why does he give him this foretaste of the agony that will bestow him? I mean, does he want Jesus to know what's coming? Does he, is this him saying, Jesus, I want you to see what's ha- going to happen in a few days? Because for me, I don't know if, I'm, if you're like this, but if there's something really hard, really scary, really stress and anxiety producing that's coming my way in life, I don't want to know about it ahead of time. I'd rather just be surprised. Honestly, The worrying and thinking about it happening is often worse than it's actually happening. So is this God just saying like, deal with this for a few days, Jesus? That's not our God, is it? I mean, it's going to be really bad. I want you to think about it. No. I mean, why would God do that? Certainly not. Here's the other thing. It's kind of a risk by God in some sense. Jesus hasn't been arrested yet. At this point, he's in the the garden with his disciples. He's outside the city walls. There's no one else around. I mean, they could flee. They could run. Jesus could say, you know what? This is not what I signed up for. I'm out. So why does God show him the cross? Why does he give him this glimpse? Why does he reveal the cup of wrath to Jesus? This is what Jonathan Edwards says, and I think he's right. It was so we could see Jesus go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience so that his love for us would be put on display even more. Friends, Jesus was not duped into the cross. He wasn't connived or convinced into the crucifixion. He chose to face the horrors of that cup of wrath willingly. Why? Because of his great love for us. And I say this because I think the word love has gotten so watered down in our world. We live in a world of cheap love. All the time in our world, I mean, love, 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 love. I mean, you go to Ikea and you can buy posters with the word love. People decorate their homes with kitschy little L-O-V-E's. Some of you have that in your walls. That's okay. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying love doesn't have the deep significance and meaning and power that it ought to have in our world. People often say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. They might really mean it. But here's the truth. Love and sacrifice are always in direct relationship. 
In other words, the more someone loves you, the more they will sacrifice for you. The more someone loves you, the more they will sacrifice for you. At the second hour, I'm going to direct that at our young people and say, hear that. Consider that. Think deeply about that. Because anyone can say, I love you, and now I want some some stuff from you. But real love says, I love you, and I want to sacrifice for you. See, there's people in this world that I love a little, and I will sacrifice for them a little. And there are people in this world that I love a lot, and I will sacrifice for them a lot. But no one has ever sacrificed more for you than Jesus. No one has ever sacrificed more for you than Jesus. And so today, if you are unsure, if you are wondering how much he loves you, look at what he willingly did for you. Look at the choice that he made for you in the garden. Friends, this is why when we gather together as a church, we, we are told by the scriptures to regularly share this meal, the Lord's Supper. We're going to share it together in just a minute. The reason we share it is because in this meal, we remember what Jesus did for us because he loves us. It's a declaration of the amazing, unfathomable love of God, a love that supersedes any kind of love we can or will ever experience in this world from one another. In the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in the passage right before this one, right before the garden, he says to them, when you gather together, share this meal. He talks about the bread and he talks about the cup. And the cup that he says we're to share together is the cup of redemption. In in the Passover celebration, there are a number of different moments when they share wine, when they raise the cup. And this is the third time. This is the third cup. It's the cup that speaks of the, the redemption of God, God redeeming you and me. It's the cup that redeems us from and saves us from all of our sin. It's the cup that Jesus is offered here in the garden And so when we share this cup, friends, together in the Lord's Supper, we're remembering and we are declaring that Jesus paid the price for all my sin. He took all of God's wrath against all evil and he satisfied God's justice. He said, I'm going to make it right. Sin and evil and depravity and brokenness in this world are going to pay. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make you right. Because I love you more than, I, than you can even imagine. And furthermore, what we see in the garden is that by drinking the cup, by choosing to say, yes, Lord, this cup that you've placed before me, I will drink it. By going to the cross, here's something else we see in Jesus. He's utterly abandoned. Notice how the gospel writer here in Mark just makes a point of showing that he goes back to his disciples. He's like, guys, are you with me? You're supporting me? What are they doing? They're sleeping. In Jesus' darkest hour, his closest guys are not there for him. And friends, they are symbolic of a greater truth. It's not just that they won't be there for him in his crucifixion. Neither will the Father. Not only will Jesus go through the most horrible, awful, agonizing, soul-crushing thing in all of history, he will go through it 
alone. He will bear the weight of human sin, not with his father at his side, but in isolation and in separation. And the message here, friends, the message for you and me is that Jesus endures this separation so that we will never have to. In other words, in the cross and in this meal, we remember and declare that when we face our darkest hours, when you are deeply distressed and troubled, when your soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, you won't be alone. Because Jesus drank the cup, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Because Jesus endured the cross, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when we share this meal, we are saying that to ourselves and to one another. We're reminding our hearts and souls of that. And we speak that kind of generally into our lives. This meal is a declaration to all of our lives. Like, God was going to be with me. He loves me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me through anything. But specifically, I'd say... We're making this declaration into the Gethsemanes of our lives, into these dark gardens of our lives. We're making this declaration into our places of greatest struggle and difficulty and pain and trouble and fear. We take this meal as a declaration to say, even though this world brings trouble, our God has overcome the world. And so before we share the bread and the cup today, let me ask you this question. Think about this for a minute. Where in life do you need the Lord's Supper to speak to you today? Where do you need to be reminded of God's amazing love? Where do you need to be reminded of his promise to be with you? Where do you need to make that declaration, he's with me in this thing? In this health thing, in this work thing, in this school thing, in this relationship thing, or kid thing or marriage thing or single thing or addiction thing or depression thing, even though I'm tempted to believe and the enemy wants to convince me that I am alone, that God is not with me, he is with me and he will never leave me because he left Jesus, he will never leave me. Jesus endured the separation that we deserve so that we will never be separated. And so today as we take this meal, think about that place for you in life right now where you need to be reminded and convinced of and confident in God's love and presence in your life. Because that's what Jesus promises, and that's what he did when he endured the cup. So let's get our elements out. If you have them, we're going to share them together today. Jesus took the bread in that supper, and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this, remembering how much I love you. Let's take the body of Christ and eat together. Then after supper, he took the cup, the cup of redemption. And just think about this moment for a second. The Last Supper, this is, Jesus hasn't been to the cross yet. He hasn't endured this horrible, agonizing thing yet. And he holds the cup up and he says, when you gather together, share this cup. And this cup for you will be a moment of joy and celebration and confidence and a sense of God's presence. But for Jesus, it's going to be something different. And yet he, he sits with his disciples and says, share this meal and remember the cup that I endured so that you can drink this cup 
Not in pain, not in agony, not in separation, but in the presence and confidence of your Father. The cup of redemption, we share it together. Take and drink. Father, today, as we share this meal and we make this declaration, I pray that the darkest places in our lives would just be pierced with light. The light of hope, the light of courage, the light of strength in your presence. God, I pray that we're reminded today the power of sin and death in this world, although it seems overwhelming to us, has been shattered and conquered. Remind us of that, God, in our places where we need to hear it most. I pray today, Lord, for people in this room who are facing difficult things, maybe just an identity crisis, maybe just a sense that this life is meaningless or empty, God, and they're struggling with who they are and why they exist, God, that you'd speak to their minds and hearts today, that you'd remind them of your great love for them, that you'd remind them of the sacrifice you made on their behalf. Remind us, God. Encourage us today. Lift us up. We thank you, Lord, for being the kind of God that sacrifices for us, that doesn't just offer cheap love, but love with amazing substance. You're good. You're gracious. You're wonderful. We need you and we love you and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.